everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcast. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the newest episode of our podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Elise Bean, who for many years worked for Senator Carl Levin on the United States Senate uh, Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. And uh, Elise, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, let me start out by asking you to explain to me and to our listeners a little bit more about what the Senate Select Committee on Investigations does and what your role was on that committee. So this subcommittee was first set up by Harry Truman when he was in the Senate, and it was formed to look at waste, fraud, and abuse and war profiteering during World War II. He went around the country, found a lot of problems, and in a bipartisan, common-sense manner, fixed a lot of those problems. And the Senate was so impressed that they made the subcommittee permanent. That's why we have our strange name, the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Uh, I should explain that back then, um, committees were formed for the purposes of doing a single investigation, and then when the investigation was done, the committee would disappear. But the Senate decided they needed to have a place where people who were very good at investigations would stay on and take on various tasks. So since then, uh, the subcommittee has become probably the premier investigative body in the U.S. Congress, and Senator Levin was uh, the most senior Democrat, either the chair or the ranking member for the last 15 years he was in the Senate. Great. Thanks very much. And so the next thing I want to ask you is that since our podcast is focused particularly on issues related to corruption and anti-corruption, to talk a little bit about the work that the subcommittee did that you worked on that addressed issues related to corruption domestically or internationally. How did this kind of legislative oversight or legislative investigative capacity contribute to efforts to deal with corruption? Well, the subcommittee had jurisdiction to look at corporate misconduct writ large, and in particular at money laundering. And so through its history, it had a number of different anti-money laundering investigations, and in fact was responsible for the first anti-money laundering law that was passed to the United States. And in fact, I think it was the first one in the world to make money laundering itself a crime. So by the time Senator Levin joined, uh, took a leadership position on the subcommittee, that was in 1999, uh, he was in the minority, uh, Democrats were in the minority at that time, but under the subcommittee rules, they could initiate their own investigation. And so he decided as his first investigation, he would do something looking at money laundering. And over the years, he held four or five different investigations looking at how corrupt actors, either abroad or domestic, would misuse U.S. financial institutions, either banks or securities firms or hedge funds, things like that. And uh, we exposed weaknesses in the law and practice, and we were able to identify problems and suggest solutions. So give me an example. What's your um, one of your favorite examples of how some of the investigations that you were able to conduct contributed 
uh, not only to uncovering evidence of malfeasance, but to changes in uh, U.S. law. Well, the very first investigation Senator Levin did um, while he was still in the minority was to look at how Citibank Private Bank was helping corrupt dictators and their family members to open up bank accounts and um, run dirty money through those accounts. Uh, he ended up exposing four different examples. He had case histories at a hearing. Uh, the most famous had to do with Raul Salinas, who was then the brother to the president of Mexico. And it turned out that Citibank had set up a very elaborate way for him to move about $100 million out of Mexico into private bank accounts in London and Switzerland. And um, result of that, he, he did several others involving different countries, different uh, dictators. The conclusion of that was to pass um, Title III of the Patriot Act, which really strengthened anti-money laundering laws in the United States. How so? Well, so for example, um, I'll just give you a little flavor of what the bank did for uh, Raul Salinas. What they did is they took his uh, girlfriend at the time, introduced her to the manager of their flagship bank in Mexico City, and asked that manager to accept cashier's checks from her. She would bring in cashier's checks from other Mexican banks for very large amounts, 100000 more. They would, uh, the manager would deposit that in the bank's own account and send it to New York to the attention of the private banker who was handling the account in New York. It was a woman named Amy Elliott. She would then forward that money to their private bank uh, branches in Switzerland and in the UK, and they would put it in an account that had been opened in the name of a shell company called Troca which Citibank had also uh, set up and used for Mr. Salinas. So over time, uh, as I said, he had nearly $100 million in those Swiss and London accounts. Later on, he uh, was arrested for the murder of his brother-in-law. His wife was caught at a Swiss bank uh, with an account that had $84 million in it. This was a different bank. And eventually they found out about the accounts in Citibank. So all of that was showing that the bank was not a passive victim. It wasn't hoodwinked. It was actually helping Mr. Salinas to move questionable suspect funds out of Mexico. As a result, in the legislation that we got passed, uh, at the time, it was not against the law for a U.S. bank to take money from a foreigner as long as the source of that money came from outside of the United States, even if the bank knew it was dirty money. As long as nothing had happened in the U.S., it was not against the law for the U.S. bank to take that money. Well, we changed the law. We said it is a U.S. money laundering offense to take money that was the product of foreign corruption. So we changed the law. You couldn't, banks were no longer able to accept that money without being at risk for criminal prosecution. So how exactly would that work? So suppose that a case identical to the rule of Salinas case in all relevant respects arose today, and he had tried to engage in the same kind of shenanigans with Citibank that he and his girlfriend and others tried to in the real case, at what points would the bank's legal obligations now be different from what they were before you did your investigation? Exactly who would have to do what? So the private banker back then and now is supposed to know their customer. They're supposed to understand who they are, and they're supposed to understand the origins of their money. So here you had a person who uh, did come from a wealthy family, but not so wealthy that he would have you know, tens of millions of dollars to ship out of the country. So you'd have to ask where that money came from. That was true back then. Citibank didn't ask the question. 
when they were asked later, where did you think that money came from? They said, well, we thought he sold a company, but they didn't know what company, they didn't know the date of the sale, didn't have any of that information. But what's additional now is if you had some suspicion that that money was the result of bribes, let's say, or um, embezzlement or something like that, it would be against the law for you to take that money. Back then, even if you knew that, you could till, still accept the money. So what does suspicion mean in this context? So again, some of our listeners might be lawyers, some might not, but I think a reasonable person hearing what you just said, which all sounds entirely sensible, I think, well, wait a second. If I'm a banker, a private banker, and someone from a country like, in that case, it was Mexico, but any number of other places comes to me and they have a big chunk of money they want me to handle, I might feel like, hmm, this is a little bit, suspicious because, you know, I know there's a lot of corruption in this country and where might they've gotten this, but I don't have any tangible or concrete. And the person who comes to me at least can tell a plausible story. I come from a wealthy family. So I guess when you're talking about potential criminal liability, I suppose the bankers and maybe us as the public generally, we want to have a sense of what does it mean to have enough suspicion that you can't do business with the person? Well, I think you're hitting on a really difficult issue. What is suspect money? I'll have to say that the cases I've looked at have not really been close to the line. These are people that were known to be corrupt dictators or were known to be corrupt. Mr. Salinas himself had a very bad reputation at the time. um, And there was no obvious explanation for where that money came from. Uh, And the bank didn't ask. But if they had asked, you know, he sold some company, well, they'd have to say, well, what company? Can you give me some evidence of that sale that you should have so much money? Uh, The other thing is that when they opened the account, they thought there would be a couple million dollars in it. And when all of this money started flowing through, we had an email from the private banker uh, expressing her surprise and saying how, uh, isn't this a delightful surprise and now I'm going to get a big bonus for bringing in such a big account. Obviously, she wasn't really asking too hard of questions because her own compensation was linked to the amount of money that she brought in. That's still true today. So there are incentives for private bankers not to ask uh, where the money is coming from. But on the other side of it, banks have become much more careful and they want to understand who their clients are. So in that scenario that you just described, again, just to explain how the law as currently uh, written works, would it be the bank that could potentially be criminally liable if they didn't shut down the account the private banker herself, or both of them? You know, it's theoretically possible for both of them, but usually these are not handled as criminal matters. They're Mm. usually handled as civil administrative matters that the bank itself had an obligation. Today, it has a requirement that it have an anti-money laundering program with certain controls in it. And if those controls are not effective or they're not even in place, the bank can be fined money or required to spend money to create the program it needs to. So it's not usually criminal. You'd have to have a very high uh, amount of evidence showing that they knew it was drug money, for example. Even when you find that, HSBC recently admitted that it had accepted $800 million in drug money into its U.S. branch, but it got a deferred prosecution agreement. It wasn't criminally uh, prosecuted. It simply agreed to clean up its act, and that's, that's usually what happens. So that leads to common criticism that I'm sure you're familiar with, not of this specifically, but it's related of of the way the U.S. chooses to enforce these kinds of laws generally, and that's that you frequently see cases resolved through settlements with the institution as opposed to individual people 
being punished or sometimes going to jail. So I'm, again, I'm sure you're familiar with the line of criticism. I'd be very interested in your perspective on whether that line of criticism is apt in this case, whether you think the way that this section of the Patriot Act is written and the way it's being enforced, which as you say, usually involves civil or administrative penalties imposed on the institution often after a settlement agreement is appropriate, or whether really what you need to do is take those private bankers who are in situations like the ones you've just described and react the way uh, the banker in that case uh, reacted and prosecute them individually. Well, a lot of these banks make so much money from these corrupt accounts that even after they pay a penalty or a fine, they're still ahead. And if no one ever goes to jail, I don't think it's enough of an, a deterrent. You need to send some folks to jail when some of this stuff happens. Amy Elliott set up this entire system to break the audit trail so that there were cashier's checks with no client's name that was the origin of the money. So it was very hard to prove that Mr. Salinas was the source of the money. That's not acceptable conduct, and yet nothing ever happened to her, either civilly or criminally. Uh, there isn't enough, I don't think, criminal prosecution of people involved in these situations. Well, let me ask you to, to put that point that you just made together with the point that you made earlier, which is that it's often very difficult to get enough evidence of the corrupt intent or the level of knowledge uh, that we would ordinarily want to see if we're going to put somebody in jail. Now, maybe back in the case of Amy Elliott, when things were still sort of Wild Westish and no one thought any of this was serious, it was people were just blatantly setting up phony accounts. But I guess it seems to me that there's maybe a challenge, call it, between the point that you made just a little while ago that one of the reasons we often rely on civil and administrative penalties is that it may be very difficult to prove the kind of actual knowledge or, or corrupt intent to show that these individual people really knew that they were laundering money. But on the other hand, this other point which you made, which also seems very powerful, that the institutions are, can too easily absorb the financial penalties and we need to you see what I'm getting yes, how do we balance the need to hold individuals accountable with you know we have these ideas that you don't put someone in jail unless you can really show proof beyond a reasonable right. doubt of criminal intent how do you manage that tension well i think of the hsbc investigation that we did in 2012 the headquarters for the anti money laundering unit within the bank frequently would tell their bank branches close this account this particular account holder is suspicious. We don't like what they're doing. The pattern of the money going through the account is disturbing. Close the account. But the headquarters did not have the authority to actually force the account to be closed. And quite often, the branch simply wouldn't close the account. And this would go on for two, three years at a time, where they're telling them to close the account, but the account isn't closed. In that kind of situation, it's very difficult to pin criminal liability on somebody because the headquarters was telling them to close the account. And some very, somebody very low down on the totem pole is not closing it. Do you really hold them responsible for it? So I think you're right. There's a real tension there about what is the just result. Uh, in the case of HSBC, they got the uh, deferred prosecution as well. Nobody went to jail. And you just wonder if that's enough of a deterrent. So we get caught up between going after individuals not having sufficient level of proof. But on the other hand, it just keeps meaning that uh, private bankers can take risks because it's so rare that anything happens to them personally. What about the idea of just increasing the financial penalties of the banks to the point where they start to care about them? Would that be a way to try to strike the right balance? Well, HSBC had a $2 billion fine. That's a pretty big fine. But on the other hand, for HSBC, there's so much money involved that 
it didn't have a, a tremendous financial impact on them. So that's another tension that people are like, we're talking billions of dollars now, and we still can't get their attention. And uh, that suggests that until somebody goes to jail, you're not going to get their attention. But on, And then again, you run into this, not only the, the matter of proof, but who should be held responsible. If we can prove it against the lower, lower level people, but nobody higher up ever gets caught, that also is a problem. Let me ask you another about another line of, I don't know if criticism is the right word, but skepticism about anti-money laundering laws that are built around disclosure or uh, suspicious transactions or what have you that I often hear when I talk about these issues with non-lawyers or, or lay people, which is just a skepticism that the bad guys, the kleptocrats, the embezzlers will tell the truth. So there's a line that says, well, look, if you imposed an obligation that you had to report suspicious transactions, these guys would just lie about the source of their money. They would be able to come up with forged documents or whatever to try to fool the bankers. So I guess what I want you to do is talk a little bit about how easy or difficult it is to get around a disclosure and reporting-based system by being untruthful with the banks or others? Well, I, I actually think it's very difficult to get around that disclosure. Um, when I started off, this was back in 1999, 2000, there was a lot of outrageous stuff going on. Dictators around the world were putting all kinds of cash into U.S. banks. U.S. banks were accepting it, uh, and nothing seemed to happen to them. Since then, there have been a lot of investigations, prosecutions, civil proceedings that have exposed what the banks have done wrong, and the banks have gotten a lot tougher. Uh, so when I started off, somebody like Mr. Obiang, who's the president of Equatorial Guinea and is known to be a very corrupt official, he had accounts opened up in his name. Banks op created shell companies for him, opened up accounts in the names of the shell companies, but they knew he was behind it. Uh, after about 10 years, we looked again in 2010, and he couldn't open up an account in his own name. People would just do a LexisNexis search. They would see his name, and they would say, we're not comfortable opening up an account for this person. Then he had lawyers uh, create shell companies in the United States, opened up accounts in those shell company names. But pretty soon, within a year, every bank would see his name keeps appearing. His name's on checks, uh, credit card accounts. Uh, there's money coming from Equatorial Guinea. The truth starts to out after a while. If a bank pays attention, they know who's behind these uh, accounts. You, you can fool them, but it's difficult, and if they're watching, uh, to me, in many cases, they know exactly who's behind the account, and if they become uncomfortable, they close the accounts. And that's much more true now than it used to be. So I think things have gotten better over time, and I think it's difficult for people to try to hoodwink the bank because they need the money, their name shows up, and uh, a record starts to be built. So another way that these bad guys, criminals, kleptocrats, might try to get around this problem that the banks are now obligated to gather information and report it is by trying to find ways to launder their money that don't touch the banking system or elements of the financial system that are subject to these reporting requirements. Can you talk a little bit about how serious of a problem is that? How easy or difficult is it to do an end run around these anti-money laundering laws by doing things that can clean your money without ever having to touch one of these financial institutions that's subject to the kinds of laws you're you're talking about. And if it is a significant problem, what sorts of things can or should be done to block block off that end run, to close those loopholes? 
So you're absolutely right. As you tighten up on the banks and securities firms and insurance companies, people find other ways to try to deal with their dirty money. Sometimes they uh, just bring it across uh, borders on trains or they've used submarines. They've used, you know, all kinds of ways. And there's a game going on to catch that money, bulk uh, cash smuggling, they call it. We miss a lot of it, but we get a lot of it too. So it's it's kind of a lottery whether you can get that to work. And that's one of the reasons we need secure borders is to be able to look for that cash. Uh, there's other things. Some people buy real estate. People who are involved in real estate under law are subject to anti-money laundering requirements, but a temporary exception was created for them in 2002. That temporary exception, it's now 17 years later, it's still on the books. So people who deal with real estate don't have a legal obligation to know their clients, to look for suspicious cash, and to report problems to law enforcement. That's one of those loopholes that needs to be closed. There's others like that as well. Uh, hedge funds can take money from offshore. They have no anti-money laundering obligations. For years, um, they've also had that same temporary exception. It should be closed, uh, but it hasn't been so far. There's a lot of, you know, trade-based money laundering is still another big um, loophole out there where you misprice various kinds of products in order to move cash either in or out of a country. So, you know, this anti-money laundering problem is a very complex one. It continues. I think we've made progress, but there's still a long, a long way to go. So, so tell me a little bit more about this exemption, this 17-year-old temporary exemption for real estate and hedge funds and other entities. I guess uh, a natural human reaction to hearing this is this seems uh, kind of crazy on two levels. First, it seems bizarre that these entities would be exempted from the requirements that apply to banks in the first place. And second, it seems even more strange that this has lasted for 17 years. So it's clear from what you just said that you also think that it's ridiculous. But can you explain? Is, sure. is there a plausible rationale or at least a, a superficially plausible rationale that was offered in the beginning for the exemption and that's offered now for not eliminating the exemption? Why does it exist? So here's the story behind that. We had the 9-11 terrorist attack. In response to that, Congress decided we needed to tighten our anti-money laundering controls to protect the United States from people who are misusing our financial institutions and causing harm. So they passed um, Title III of the Patriot Act, which tightened our anti-money laundering laws. One of the big provisions in there required all financial institutions to have anti-money laundering programs. So it became, before they were voluntary, it became mandatory. Well, financial institution was defined in the law. There were 26 different categories, things like banks, securities firms, money transmitters, insurance companies. And Treasury, who had to implement the law, said, we can't do all 26 at once. We're going to have to do it in phases. So we're going to start with the really important guys like the banks and the securities firms and the money transmitters first. And we're going to give a temporary exemption to certain categories, and we'll get to them later. And the categories they exempted were the hedge funds, uh, because they didn't have a lot of evidence of money laundering going on through hedge funds. They exempted persons involved with real estate closings. They exempted people who sold ships like yachts or Rolls Royces, expensive cars, and airplanes like uh, personal jets. They gave them all an exemption. This was in 2002. The expectation was that in the next couple years, they would get to those categories as well and make sure that they were all required to have anti-money laundering programs. But for some reason, Treasury just never got back 
to those categories, and they still have this exemption 17 years later. Treasury occasionally would put out a proposed rule, but they would never finalize it. And it, it is mysterious to me and hard to understand why Treasury has never gotten around to closing, getting rid of that temporary exemption and enforcing the law. Did your committee or any other oversight committees in the House or Senate ever have an oversight hearing where they grilled we, members we of the Treasury about them. this? We specifically had many of them. on this point. And in fact, we had a bipartisan recommendation from Senator Levin and Senator Tom Coburn, a conservative Republican. So you had bipartisan recommendation to get rid of all of those exemptions. And it's been suggested a number of times from a number of different members of Congress, but it still hasn't been done. Let me pick up on that point you just made about bipartisanship, and this will take the conversation a little bit of a different direction, but it's something I wanted to ask you about. So I gather from what you've written and what you, the way you've spoken about your experiences that there was maybe what seems like an unusual degree of bipartisanship, especially given our current political environment, on the kinds of investigations that you were doing. So is that roughly correct? Yes, and, and there's a story behind that as well. Um, so we were start off by Truman... Uh, and the subcommittee had a great reputation. But then we had a chairman named Joe McCarthy, and that was the nader of the subcommittee. It ruined our reputation. It was a huge backlash against him. And in response to him, the subcommittee created new rules that were the most bipartisan in the Senate, and I think that's still true today. Both sides have to approve each other's investigations. Everybody gets access to all the information. And there's just been a tradition that has um, arisen over the years where Republicans and Democrats work together on all of their investigations. And what that means is they do their document requests together. They interview witnesses together. They design their hearings and they write the reports together. And that happened for the entire 15-year period that Senator Levin was there. We know it happened before us. We know it's been happening with the people who have uh, used the subcommittee since then. Right now, the chairman is Rob Portman. Uh, the ranking Democrat is Tom Carper. And again, just like we did, they work together hand in glove in a bipartisan way to tackle the issues that they're looking at. Do you think there would ever be any concern if the nature of the investigations was such that it had more of a partisan cast? So a lot of the investigations that you describe, we're talking about foreign kleptocrats where it's not like Democrats or Republicans have a particular investment in Roel Salinas, for example, uh, or we're talking about Citibank uh, or what have you. I guess there's a little bit of a partisan lean, maybe more than a little bit now, especially to the banking sector generally. Uh, but I'm asking this in part because in the current context, in the current climate, some of these investigations of nominally private parties have more of a, at least a perceived partisan connection than maybe was true in the past. So do you think that that's a legitimate concern to have? Do you think that there's any kind of threat to the this committee's tradition of bipartisanship if, for example, Deutsche Bank has been in various ways connected or rumored to be connected with Trump organization in ways that might be associated with unlawful conduct? Do you see what I'm getting yes, at? Is there a concern sure. about can you preserve that tradition of bipartisanship where some of the things that you're investigating might actually start to hit a little bit closer to home to one or one or the other of the major political parties? Well, PSI has a lot of control over what it investigates. And by tradition and practice, it simply doesn't choose to do investigations that have a deep partisan edge. They just don't do them because they are so concerned with preserving their bipartisan fabric to the subcommittee. So they don't do, they might look at Deutsche Bank in terms of 
how it's been helping Russian money, uh, suspect Russian money going through the United States. You know, how does that happen that we have $150 billion in dirty Russian money coming through Deutsche Bank in the United States? That would be a classic PSI investigation. But PSI traditionally has not done the kind of thing like, well, let's look at how Deutsche Bank related to the president. That's just not something that they, um, by practice or tradition, has looked at. And I think it's, it's very intentional because to them, it's one of the few completely bipartisan investigative subcommittees that's very important to everybody who participates on that subcommittee. And they, they work to protect the subcommittee from those partisan battles that go on. I see. That's interesting. That suggests there's an interesting trade-off or tension maybe in that, on the one hand, adopting that posture preserves the bipartisan nature of the committee's investigations and therefore their credibility. On the other hand, the way you just described it, it means the the scope of the investigations or the things that get investigated are going to be limited because there might be really serious issues that are the kind of thing you would ordinarily look into, but that might touch a a sufficiently well, partisan issue that let's not touch it. There are so many nonpartisan issues that are really serious problems. When you think about cybersecurity, money laundering is another one, uh, dr- price gouging in the uh, pharmaceutical industry. There are so many problems that don't have a partisan edge to them that PSI can do very productive work without having to make a decision between, well, this is something we ought to be doing, but we're going to do something less important. The stuff that it does is not less important. They, they're actually very important issues that nobody else is looking at. That, um, that actually raises another kind of question I want to put to you. So it seems like, put aside the whole issue of partisan issues that might have a partisan implication to them. From the way you describe it, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong about this, there's there are far more issues out there that your committee could investigate, your former committee could investigate, then you possibly have the time and resources to investigate. True. You're an incredibly <laughs> capable person, but there are only so many hours of the day and you have to sleep and your staff is, you know, you don't have a thousand people working. And you're not even like the Department of Justice would have a larger My staff, staff. at its largest was 10. And uh, the minority staff would have five. So we'd have about 15 people at any one time on the subcommittee. So I assume you can see where I'm going with this. How do you choose, given all the things you could investigate, all the things that might be coming across your desk that constituents or whistleblowers or the senators or uh, the executive branch are putting in front of you? How do you do the triage? Right? Yes. You've got all this stuff coming in. How do you choose what to what to look into? So it really depends on who's the chair of the committee or the, the ranking member because they can they initiate the investigations. Sometimes it's obvious. For example, when Enron declared bankruptcy, the seventh largest company in the country all of a sudden was bankrupt and shocked so many people and hurt so many people in so many ways. Senator Levin just came into our office and said, drop whatever you're doing. We're doing Enron for the next year. So that, you know, financial crisis, Senator Levin and Senator Coburn said, we need to investigate this in a bipartisan way. We need to figure out what were the key causes of the financial crisis so that we can prevent it from happening again. That was our hardest investigation. It took two years. It was so complicated, so difficult. We produced a 750-page report, the only bipartisan report that came out on the financial crisis. And I think we're able to really contribute some very thoughtful analysis to what happened. So sometimes it's events, but other times it's what your member is interested in. So Senator Levin was really interested in uh, tax dodging by multinational corporations. He thought it was outrageous that these very profitable corporations didn't really pay very much tax in the United States. And he had us do a series of three hearings looking at 
corporations like Apple, Microsoft, and Caterpillar uh, about how they were able to essentially engage in massive tax dodging. You know, what exactly happened? Lay out exactly what happened. So there, you know, things, and there are other issues. He had us look at, uh, we heard that accounting firms were selling tax shelters and making a lot of money from it. He wanted to know, is that true? And if it is true, how exactly are they doing that? Uh, so there's a lot of, he was interested in financial matters, tax matters. So that's what we concentrated on. But it was also, you know, just the scandals that, that came up, the London whale trades. Uh, that was a big one that we did. So you kind of see what happens and what's of interest and import. And what could we actually tackle with our very small staff? So some of the issues that you, your committee investigated, including the ones that you described earlier in our conversation, deal with foreign states and often political officials or former political officials in foreign states. Were there ever foreign, significant enough foreign policy implications of the kinds of things your committee was doing that you engaged with the U.S. State Department or the Senate committees that dealt with foreign relations? And just thinking, Rose Salinas was the brother of a president, not the actual president, but you can see where I'm going with yeah, this. Yes, so we a had huge it was surprising. It was surprising to me how often uh, we did get involved with foreign affairs because if you look at corruption, and we often did, it was often involving uh, foreign dictators or their family members who were hiding money in the United States. We also had cases of wealthy people in the United States hiding money in tax havens, which has got a foreign dimension to it as well. One time we uh, did an investigation looking at the oil for food program at the UN. We worked very closely with the State Department, getting information from them. This is the one involving Iraq, correct? Right, the Iraq for right. Food program. And it was a pure uh, corruption problem that Iraq had corrupted that UN program uh, in a major way, and we wanted to see exactly what happened and how did that happen. So, you know, we often were looking at actors who were outside of the United States, and it's difficult because our subpoena authority did not extend beyond the borders of the country. So we had to get creative in the ways that we um, could get information. Subpoenaing email in the United States would often disclose foreign actors and what they were doing. Uh, We had investigations where we would subpoena information from a family office of a wealthy individual, and we would get all of the emails that he was dealing with with foreign trust companies and company formation agents and shell companies. So there's ways to do it, and we did have a lot of foreign uh, elements in our investigations. Did you ever have cooperation from foreign governments or foreign law enforcement agencies in your investigation, or was it quite separate? Well, we um, were very careful about informing embassies in Washington when we were looking at something involving a country. So we would call up the Isle of Man bank regulators, for example, and we were looking at shell companies and financial uh, transactions in that country. And we would talk to them and try to have them educate us about what were their laws, what was good practice there, what was bad practice, particular firms or or individuals if they knew of them. So we would get some cooperation. Uh, At some times, they were not cooperative at all. We uh, dealt with Switzerland in several of our investigations, and they were not happy that we were looking at their banks, and they were not at all helpful. So uh, Mexico was very helpful. They um, were very supportive of the investigation that we did out there looking at HSBC's Mexican branch and what they were up to. So it varied. So let me ask you uh, maybe to clarify a little bit. We sort of zipped over this, but I think many of our listeners may be interested to understand the relationship between the kinds of legislative congressional investigations that your committee was responsible for. And then in the executive branch, there are obviously 
enforcement actions uh, from the Department of Justice, or in some cases, other agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission. And then there's also other activity, you know, not straight up enforcement, rulemaking, regulatory activity, investigative activity, for example, by the Internal Revenue Service, by the Department of the Treasury, and so forth. So, so can you give me a sense and give our listeners a sense of how the Select Committee of Investigations, or maybe legislative oversight more generally, fits in, how it relates to those other actors, how responsibility is divided, if there's ever tension or turf conflict, do you all work harmoniously? Explain a little bit how those relationships work. Well, the constitutional basis for Congress to do investigations, there's nothing in the Constitution explicitly about it, but the Supreme Court has said that Congress can do its investigations as long as it's for a legislative function. So if it's in pursuit of their attempts to pass legislation, appropriate money, uh, evaluate nominations for office, think about military actions, as long as it's connected to a legislative function, the Supreme Court has said that Congress has very broad authority to do its investigations. And the point of those investigations, there's really two big functions if you want to think about it. Um, One is that Congress is getting information so that it can do its job properly. I mean, isn't it a good idea to have a few facts before you legislate or appropriate money? Quaint idea. (laughs) The second big uh, objective of congressional oversight is to act as a check and balance on the other branches of government. So if you see power being abused in the executive branch or judiciary branch, Congress has a constitutional role to try to act as a check and balance on those. So those are the two big functions. Basically, it comes down to policy. When you have law enforcement, they're looking for legal violations, enforcement of the law. They want to throw people in jail or fine them. That's not Congress's role. Congress's role is really more policy-oriented. And that's a very important role. If you think about Watergate, yes, some burglars went to jail, but that's not why people think Watergate was important. They think about the facts that came out that led to the president's resignation, to campaign finance reform, to other kinds of reforms that... Uh, you know, rolled out from that. In the financial crisis, again, hardly anybody went to jail, but there were huge policy changes made and through the Dodd-Frank Act to put more controls on the financial institutions. So the policy objectives of congressional investigations and the checks and balances are actually very important as well. Terrific. So we're, we're almost nearing the end of our time, but maybe I wanted to close by asking you to look forward. So a lot of our discussion has been on your experience and what you've learned from it. And I want to maybe pick up a thread that we were touching on earlier that has to do with what changes still need to be made, what improvements still need to be made. So partly as a result of your committee's investigation, you described a number of changes to the law that we've already seen, Title III of the Patriot Act being one of them, but I know there have been many more. If we were to look ahead, so over the next, let's say, five or 10-year time horizon, Uh, What would you describe as the most important changes in U.S. law, either statutory law or regulations, that you would like to see, that you think are important for us to see, to address specifically these issues related to money laundering, kleptocrats hiding their money or or exploiting the U.S. system to aid and abet their unlawful activities. What, what's your what's your list of this is this is the wish list that you, if anyone listening to our podcast is a U.S. policymaker <laughs> or someone with influence over such policymaker, what what's your list? Well, I would say the number one thing we need to do uh, is get greater transparency in the corporations that the United States forms. Right now, we form about two million companies a year. We don't ask, and we don't know who's behind them. The term is beneficial ownership, the real owner, the person who controls that entity. 
the rest of the world is starting to get much more transparent about that. The UK now has a public registry of the beneficial owners of the companies that they form in the UK. The US needs to do the same thing. We need to find out who the beneficial owners are, the real people behind the companies that we allow to be formed, and we should make that information public. And I would say that that's probably my number one anti-corruption measure that really needs to happen. There are bipartisan bills out there. They've been introduced for a number of years now. Uh, there's growing support for them, bipartisan support, and it's one of those bipartisan areas that I'm hopeful uh, we can actually see some uh, some progress in the next couple of years. So I'd say that's number one. Number two for me, there are now databases that have been created that are very recent under laws like FATCA, which is the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, or under country-by-country country reporting for multinational corporations. We've started to get information about bank accounts, about corporate tax practices. That information needs to be analyzed and it ought to be made public. I know that's kind of wonky, but uh, that's where I see some anti-corruption progress that could be made as well. To, we're starting to gather important data. We should start to analyze it and make the analysis public as well. All right, so those are your, those are your top two. And would, would uh, ending that temporary exception for real estate oh, and hedge goodness. funds be on yes. the list too? I can't believe I didn't say that. That, that. Maybe that's number two. Okay, so we've got, all right, so we've got, <laughs> uh, the so exemption. we've got your top three recommendations for the priority list for what the U.S. really needs to do to move forward in this area. First, it would be transparency with respect to beneficial ownership or the way people sometimes describe it, ending anonymous companies. Number two would be ending the special exemption from uh, hedge the, funds, the hedge for hedge real, funds, real estate agents, luxury goods, right. real estate, and that. And the third would be taking some of this data that's coming out of the, the, ta- the FATCA, the Tax Compliance Act, and making it public sharing it, allowing it to be analyzed. That's basically or at idea. least making it available to law enforcement. To law enforcement. Right now that all that information goes to our tax authorities. It should be going it has anti money laundering implications, anti corruption implications. That FATCA bank account data should be made more broadly available to law enforcement. I see so it broadly right. So Public, maybe, maybe not, but this is an important point that I think, is, again, people who don't either work in the U.S. government or aren't lawyers in the area sometimes miss. Just because the information has been provided to an entity of the U.S. government, for example, the Internal Revenue Service, that does not mean it is available to, for example, the Department of Justice. Or the when, FBI. Or the FBI. Or the CIA, yes. Got it. All right, so I think that's a perfect place to wrap up our discussion with those top three recommendations. Let's hope that some people out there who are listening uh, will help carry that forward. I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us today. So again, my guest has been Elise Bean, formerly of the United States Senate Select Committee on Investigations. Per, excuse me, permanent. That's very important. Permanent Select Committee on Investigations. And uh, thank you very much for your time. I really well, appreciate it. thank you it. so much, and thank you for all that you do in the anti-corruption field. It's very important.